What's the name of your podcast? He, he doesn't even know what the name of the podcast is, but he, he agreed to do it. That's a real friend. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so, do you think people care about how we met? I only wrote that in just because they'll be like, why is Jeff doing this with this random person? How did we meet? Um, I have a really, really bad memory, so I don't exactly remember how we met, but I'm going to assume... Wait, wait, wait. When, when did we meet? I would say around 2010 to 2012, roughly around there. Okay. About like 10 to 8 years ago, right? Okay, that sounds fine. <laughs> Sounds that sounds fine. Yeah, that sounds believable. <laughs> like I made it up. Like I actually saw my Facebook memories of me in New York, and our picture was posted in 2012. That recently. But I, but I knew you before that for yeah, sure. That's why I said 2010 to 2012. That timeline okay. be accurate. I'm quite Sherlock Holmes about this stuff. <laughs> okay. Do you remember the whether the first time we we physically met was in Singapore or in New York? I don't know if you remember exactly like the first time. If it was at, if was it at Reed Space? That'd be pretty cool if it was. It was. Okay, cool. That's yeah, awesome. That is how we met, and it was random because like you were in store and I walked in, and then we looked at each other. Go like, you are that you, right? It was something like that. And then we're like, uh, oh, kid, we're like we're actually seeing each other in real life. Like I think I've seen you know, on Instagram. Then that's how we started like becoming friends. Okay, so Instagram already existed at that point. Instagram already existed at that point, and it was truly an organic experience where, like, you do see this person digitally, and then you see them in real life. You're like, oh shit, hi! Yeah, yeah. Read space, and it was. I think you also told me like you're hardly ever there, so I think it was like right. one of those stars aligned type things. Long story short, we've known each other for ten plus years. Ten plus years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, do you want to talk about growing up in New Jersey and then moving to New York City? Sure. Um, I was born in New Jersey, and for this very global international audience that I'm sure is listening to this, New Jersey <laughs> is like is like a little like if this is New York, and then you have Manhattan, which is like the epicenter of planet Earth. New Jersey is like a little piece of turd that like sticks out the ass of Manhattan. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I was born there. You know, take like um, 45 minutes to get to that, just to cross that little bridge. Yep, exactly. 45 minutes was how far I lived from New York. Um, and uh, my parents actually worked in New York City in Chinatown. So they had an import-export business. So, you know, all the Chinese restaurants that had fortune cookies and soy sauce, they were importing them into... Yeah, so they had that very, really small business. They had a warehouse in Chinatown distributing all that product to Chinese restaurants. That's cool. Um, very hardworking, and uh, and they decided to raise me in New Jersey. You know, um, I'm the first born, um, uh, you know, person in my family that is American. Everyone else was born in Asia, wait, wait, uh, and they came from here. Hong Kong? Your family from, from my dad is from Guangzhou, and my mom's from Hong Kong. Okay. Yep, and then, so they came here to New Jersey to explicitly, you know, just have me, so they could have that first U.S. citizen. You know, <laughs> they went to have me. <laughs> They, did. they needed the passport. <laughs> yeah. I, my mom was pregnant. Bi- with me when she I'm was sorry, born. Jeff, but you're just a byproduct of what I needed to get to. Yeah. You exactly. also had people and did all this crazy stuff. But, but just the pa- just, just the papers. That's it. Papers. Just a byproduct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and we so I was raised in a very, very 
uh, white Caucasian neighborhood in, in town, you know, in, in New Jersey. Um, and it, it was like, there was good and some bad with that. You know, like, um, for instance, the high school that I went to had like 1,600 kids in my high school, and there was only like three Asians. Can you imagine like just being like the uber minority in this yeah. massive school? Um, and even like with black kids, there's probably only like a dozen black kids in the whole school, you know, so it was very, very Caucasian based. And, um, you know, there was a lot of bullying that happened on a regular basis. There was a lot of, uh, you know, what I come to know now is racism and racist remarks. But because I was born into that, it was just every day. There wasn't anything else. I was born on racism. So there wasn't anything to compare it to until I turned 18 and I went to New York University for college that I understood that I was actually being bullied and, you know, racially profiled every single day. Um, so I think that that sort of put a chip on my shoulder, as they say, you know. Um, so even though my upbringing in New Jersey wasn't filled with beautiful memories, um, I think it fueled a lot of what I do today. Um, and quite honestly, I didn't have a great relationship with my parents either. They worked like dogs, you know what I mean? Like they, it was very classic latchkey kid as they call it in America, which is like, I woke up, I was, you know, on my own, went to school on my own, um, came home. My parents didn't come home until like, you know, 9, 10 PM. So there'd be like days where I wouldn't see my parents. And, you know, I'll give you an example of this. Like, you know, in America, I don't know if they do this in, in Asia, but in America, when you get your report card from school, like your parents have to sign the report card and then you have to give it back. Yep. My parents never once in my entire life signed the report card. So sure. I signed it from the beginning. And so from the very beginning, the teachers only knew my signature. And not only did my parents never sign a report card, my parents never asked how my grades were. Yeah. <laughs> You're really just the byproduct of what they needed. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, also, I was a—I'm an only child. I have no—I yeah. have no brothers and sisters. Um, and you're an only child too, right? No, I have a brother. Just that he's a bit non-existent. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. It's fine. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I didn't have brothers and sisters either. So I was really raised very much on my own. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. Um, you know, quite frankly, you know, being that we're trying to be open and honest, you know, I recently have come to terms, you know, now that I'm in my mid forties about um, my upbringing with my parents and like how that affected me. I think it's very Asian to be like, just shut that off and like, just get to work and just succeed and be like a successful entrepreneur without sort of, until you yeah, without, without just going into the past and like, Exactly. You don't want to, you know, and, you know, Asian parents never want to talk about feelings and no, stuff like no, that. They don't. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it's something that I've recently started to open up. Yep. Um, I actually did an, a podcast about like the topic was, are you a byproduct of your childhood? Because like as a child, I was abused emotionally, like physically and all that stuff. And it does things to you. I mean, I guess your, your, what you've been through is also abuse, just that not, it's not, physical it's a very mental type place where like you're stuck in your head all the time and like you're trying to decipher what's right and wrong by yourself as a child um, yeah and I that was uh, something similar to what I was going through and I just 
actually think that like we are byproducts of our childhood but at some point as an adult you choose with the moral compass like right and wrong and how you want to live your life and build relationships with other people or like for me if i have a child how i want to treat my child um, yeah of like what i think is right and wrong yeah, yeah absolutely yeah what were we talking about again <laughs> I forget. Um, and done <laughs> get on the podcast, guys. okay so growing up in jersey and then you said a little bit about nyu right mm -hmm. so was that why you decided to plot like your roots in manhattan um for whatever reason uh well i kind of know why because i used to go to work with my parents sometimes occasionally they work saturday and sunday too so on weekends, I would just go to Chinatown with them and, and explore the city on my own. And from as young as like 12 years old or 13 years old, they would be like, okay, we're gonna be at work for the next 10 hours, just go hang out in New York City by yourself as a 13 year old. And this is like in the 80s, like in the mid 80s. So New York wasn't like gentrified yet. There was still a lot of crazy shit that was going down. And I love that energy. I just fell in love with like, this is the 80s, so it's like the birthplace of hip hop. Like, you know, mixtapes were just born and graffiti was prevalent and, you know, a lot of petty crime and, and uh, the drug scene and the, and the club scene was really just beginning in New York City. At least in that generation, of course, there was like, you know, generations before that too. But um, I just fell in love with it. I knew from like middle school, I remember telling my mom in like middle school, I'm going to go to New York University like that. I don't want to go to any college campus that has like a huge wall and like, you know, far away city. I want to be right in, in New York. Yeah. So I knew I wanted to go to NYU. And uh, when it was time for me to apply to colleges, um, I applied to like maybe five schools. But for NYU, I did this thing called early admissions where do you have that thing? Early admissions? Do you know what that yeah. is? It's when yeah. I didn't go to school. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I dropped out of school. I went to the school of life. <laughs> I Did you go to college? No, I started working at 19. Did you go to, you finish high school? No. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So early admissions means when you apply to the school, you check this box that says, if you accept me, I will deny all my other applications and guarantee oh. to come to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I did that for New York University and um, I got in. So I went to NYU and that was the first time that I lived outside of uh, New Jersey. And it was the first time that I interacted with fucking Asian people and like people of color and they weren't like my family members. It was crazy. It was really crazy. Like NYU's student body. It must have been such an exciting time for you. Oh yeah, I mean like seriously, NYU student body is at least 50% Asian. You know, so going from like three Asians in high school to 50% of the of the student population is Asian, like was just um, like incredible. I just picture like a lost tiger cub going back to the tigers. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember I met uh, on the first day of school at orientation. I met my girl, my soon to be girlfriend, who was this Asian girl. And I was like, holy shit, I can't believe I actually find an Asian person attractive. Because all my <laughs> girlfriends before that were white girls, you know, like, yeah. and they like, they brainwash you to make you, and I don't want to say they, I don't want to like generalize, but the people in my city, 
brainwashed me to be embarrassed of who I was. They gave me an identity crisis, you know? And so I was like, ill Asian girls, ill Asian food, ill Asian smells, you know what I mean? Like I hated all of that. And then when I went to NYU, I was like, oh shit, this is something to be really proud of. Yeah. So that was dope. I don't think I've had a white girlfriend since. <laughs> and now I'm married. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm, I don't. I didn't know if I should bring that out because I, I. I mean, I know you're a really private person, but I know you got married, and like later we can talk about the OCDness of your actual planning for your marriage. Because I think the last time I, I met you, you went through like with me, like step by step. This is what I'm gonna do at this time. At this time, they're gonna pick them up. At this time, we're gonna get to that place, and this is what the invite looks like. I'm like, wow, Jeff. OCD. I had a Google spreadsheet made, like a whole document made. Yeah, I was the wedding planner. Yeah, but we'll get to that. I guess. Fucking detailed, which is great. <laughs> okay, so do you want to talk about the staple story backwards in three minutes? Three okay. minutes is all I'm giving you, because I easy. I, I'm sure you've been through this question like five hundred and sixty nine point three five times. Yeah. Like that, once they're typed out, is the point three five. Um, yeah. So. Um, I don't know if you ever get bored of talking about the staple story, do you? Never? No, not at all. Okay, no. great. So you can do it backwards, and the timeline is three minutes. Should I set a timer? Yeah, I could do it easily. Okay. So I left NYU. I transferred to Parsons School of Design, which is uh, one of the best design schools in the in the world. Uh, um, I said you have to work backwards. I have right. to work. Oh, come on. Why do I have to work backwards? Because then it's more fun. Because this story has been told so many times. It's not a challenge anymore. And I know you love a challenge. We this is mad challenging. I'm like dyslexic. This is really hard. <laughs> so therefore, we're a staple today and reverse like the time. Okay, I can't do that in three minutes then. Okay, fine. I give you... <laughs> just backwards. Just backwards. Okay, just yeah. backwards, yeah. Fuck. This is really interesting. I've never, never in... All my interviews had to do this backwards. Which is why I'm saying, like, did you ever expect anything less from me, though? No, you're you're backwards. You're the backwards queen. Yeah. I'm the <laughs> what does that ever mean? Because I know you as a person and as a friend, mm. um, and I do look up to you in certain ways. So, like, I would rather not, not every way, not, not every just, way. <laughs> just certain ways. But like, I would like the interview to be interesting. In that sense to make it more like something different, you know. Anyway, yeah. Okay. All right. Yes. So today, Staple, what I do is I, I oversee two companies, basically. Um, one is a clothing line called Staple. Uh, our logo is a pigeon. I'm wearing one right now. Um, and so it's a, it's a streetwear brand, mostly men's, um, but pretty unisex as well. About 15 people work for it. We're distributed all over the world. Um, we have a full collection. And then also I have a, a creative agency called the Read Art Department. It used to be called Staple Design, but I recently rebranded it to be called Read Art Department to resurrect that Read Space name. And there's like another dozen people that work for that. So all together, I oversee about like 35 to 40 people, all told. Um, and fuck, okay, let's go backwards now. <laughs> okay. Like he's looking to the side, like there's, <laughs> but there isn't. He's just like his mind is just like, how did I do this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm gonna, I digress here a little bit, but like the reason why this is so tough for me is because I take shit one day at a time. Mm -hmm. Like every single day is just, it could be the last day, mm -hmm. not of like my life, but like 
I could literally be driving Ubers tomorrow. That's like how I live my life, you know? So it's just been this very slow snowball effect. And there's, and to me, you know, maybe from the outside, it looks like there's these sort of monumental big things that could happen that I can reverse engineer. Yeah. But it's, it doesn't feel that way for me. It feels like a very slow grind. Um, So I'm trying to pinpoint these monumental moments, but it's really hard. It's honestly really hard. Um, If, if I could wind it back, I mean, fuck. Okay. (laughs) You really stumped me on this one. I love it. That's what I said. Um, I knew you love a challenge. It wouldn't like, if I just asked you to tell the story from the start, it would just be so boring, not boring. Sorry to the other people, not boring, but you know what I mean? So conventional. So, I mean, I would say one of the biggest monumental things that happened um, about seven years ago was uh, I got some partners for the clothing line. So, um, you know, I, I, I have equity share partners, three other partners in the clothing line, the design studio, the creative agency, read art department, which is AKA rad. I'm just going to call it rad. Um, I still wholly own that. Um, and so that happened like seven years ago before that, you know, clothing, if anyone is in the fashion business, you know, trying to do your own fashion line and bootstrapping it is extremely fucking difficult. Um, so I got it up to about like a million dollar business, like on my own, like bootstrapping it. But I find that any creator, no matter how talented you are in fashion, when you get up to the like $1 million mark, you start to eat your own tail in terms of like, expense like how much it costs to sample and make a future collection starts eating into any profit that you can make and that's when a lot of companies that i encounter need some outside help to go from like 1 million to 10 million you know and so for that in that 1 million mark i was doing it by myself for like 50, like 14 years you know by myself and that was where i'm talking about it was like a very slow grind yep. um So if you rewind now back to 2005, in 2005, um, Nike, you know, asked me to sort of collaborate on a shoe. And it it just so happened that that shoe, which is the Nike Pigeon Dunk, became like a sort of holy grail of sneaker culture. And that helped put me and my brand on the map uh, because it was like one of the first big sneaker camping, you know, people camp out, people Mm. reselling. And this is for you saying that. And then for me being all the way across the world from you, even when people know that I know you, like we're acquainted, they go like, can you get me that shoe? I'm like, the fuck, bro? Like, it's been how many years? Do you think he just keeps like, okay, I'm just gonna put 500 pairs here. Just like, Steph needs one. And then my other friend over there and the other side of Asia also needs one. Like, yeah, but that's how impactful the shoe has become. Yeah, actually, this this week that we're talking is very fitting because I'm talking about the shoe. It came out in 2005. This week, did you see it? It's in the Sotheby's collection now. Oh shit! I like the yeah, you know, shoe, not the with with my signature on it. I saw you posted some other one with someone else. Yeah, no, not that last week I posted. Yeah, Sotheby's is now auctioning off the pigeon. And how much is it? What is it at now? Um, well, the stock X price for a size nine is about 145,000 us dollars. Yeah. It's insane. You just sell your stash on the side. Just like (laughs) stop working and go drive an Uber. 
Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then you should start doing business of hype in the Uber to random people that you pick up that are cool. Like, turn That's on the GoPro right idea. now. Hey, where you been? Like, was, <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, That's a great idea. Sell that yeah. repairs like secretly. <laughs> okay, but then so like, this is a, here's the. But then, like honestly, so, like how many pairs do you have? Like just lock and key. Like how many pairs do you have? I've just one. No way. You only yeah, have... I just have one. That's it. And I, guess... I don't regret. That. I don't regret it at all. Like I, I, I'm not the type of person to like hold on to the past and like just you know. Yeah, of course, of course. I just keep moving forward. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story though. So my mom texted me and she's like, "Hey, I saw this thing about Sotheby's," and I was like, "Yeah, isn't it?" amazing mom she's like is it real and i'm like yeah it's real and she's like wait she's, she's like what exactly is sotheby's she didn't really know what sotheby's was so i explained to her sotheby's is like the premier auction house in the world and everything yeah. and then she's like wow and so the the pigeon dunk is actually part of um seven shoes like the seven greatest shoes of all time as they say and they're going to be auctioned off on sotheby's so I, I t my mom reads the article and I'm like, mom, isn't that amazing? And she's like, well, there's other shoes in it though. And I was like, so? <laughs> like, I have to annihilate, I have to kill everybody. Like, it's not enough that I'm in the top seven. Do you know what Such it is though? So, so Asian, like at 45 years old, you're still trying to prove yourself like a 14 year old. <laughs> Your mom. Yeah. Um, so let me, let me try to keep going backwards in time. Yes. So that was in 2005. Um, in 2001, I opened Reed Space, which is one of the first sort of streetwear, you know, lifestyle stores, which is where you and I met, which is, you know, that was the, that was the most important reason for me to open Reed Space, so Definitely. I could meet you there. Um, so I opened that in 2001, and um, I actually, like I said before, I started Staple in 1997, mm -hmm. and the way I started Staple was I was going to Parsons School of Design, and I was taking a silkscreen class, and I was actually hand silkscreening t-shirts, um, and you know, I, I brought them to local stores in Soho. One was called Union, which is still a store that exists in LA, mm -hmm. and then uh, Triple Five Soul, which is an old classic store and brand. And they bought the staple shirts off my back, and that was like the first sort of. I, I wasn't trying how to start a brand them? because yeah, exactly. So how do you pitch them? Were you guys actually friends already, or you just like straight no, up? No, like, I was a customer. Salesman. I was okay. a customer wearing the shirt, and the oh, okay. the manager said, "I like that shirt. Where'd you get it?" Okay. I said I made it, and then, and then I had to go back to school and make twelve more for their order, and that's how I started the brand. What I love about that time because like things were so much more organic. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like in that sense, you can have 100%. a person like I actually like your product. Let me sell it, and other people might actually buy it. I know. Well, there was no, there was no like counter, no comments, no analytics, so it wasn't like. Well, I like this brand, but is it trending? Is it yeah, hot? Yeah, yeah. Like, are influencers wearing it? Like, yeah, exactly. No. How much is it going to make for us? And then after it sells, are we going to be able to make another colorway that people will buy five hundred times more? Yeah, like it's really. That's a really great point. The idea of like curation is kind of a dying art form because you just now like, oh wait. Oh, she doesn't have a blue check. No, never. Don't buy it now. Like, yeah, yeah. why? If you like it, just trust that you like it and buy it. That whole taste exactly. level is dying. Which is why, honestly, it took out a lot of joy from retail shopping for me. Like, back in the day, walking to a store meant everything. You know what I mean? Like, you can mm -hmm. find new brands. You can see people. You can, you, you know, you can randomly talk to the store owner who is standing right yeah. there. 
like you, yeah. you know what I mean? Right, yeah, yeah. And in this day, it would be, uh, I just wouldn't want to go, I just find something online and just, I don't even buy stuff anymore, just whatever. I, I know, it's, what's the solution there? Because it, you, you know, the, it, the knee jerk reaction is to be like, let's open a store where if the brand has an Instagram account, we won't carry it. But then that's not fair either, you know, wow. like. I mean, you and I, I are the big breathing organisms of the Instagram story as well. So like we, yeah. we we can't say that because it does it did help my work I'm sure it helps yours as well um, for marketing oh, yeah. stuff. Um, but I think it's come to a point where I can actually even when you just look at an account you can tell if that person is just faking it or not. I've come to a point where I can actually see that on just like through my phone. So Steph, let's name the three people who are faking it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we won't go there. I don't want to, you know, I, I never want to judge people for how they make a living. Or shame um, for them. Yeah, no, you know, if you're, if you're feeding yourself and your family from this, by all means. But I do want those people to understand that, like, you probably shouldn't put all your eggs into a Mark Zuckerberg-owned algorithm-based social media platform. Like, you should probably diversify a little bit. Yeah. I remember, like, many years ago, maybe it was, like, five years ago now, when, like, Instagram changed their algorithm of it wasn't like a timeline anymore. Everyone went ape shit crazy. Like everyone, like there were like suicides. Yeah. You know, like it was, yeah, it was crazy. So like, you know, you, you don't want that to happen. I think back in the day, like when you brought up at the beginning of this podcast, like when you talked about my Instagram, um, what is that career? It's been up and down. I think back in the day, I cared so much more about the likes, about like, is it going to be well received and like all that stuff when I was a lot younger. But then now when I thought about it, when I think about it, I'm like, yo, these are people I don't even know. They're scrolling through that thing like a second at a time. They'll see it for like a split second, whether they click it or not. It's like, I don't even care. Like, why do I even care if random people like something or not? And why do I even have to put myself out there for that kind of like, validation and that's all it is and when you know that that's all it, all it is everything i put out it's about my life about what i love and, and the people that i like and like i reached out to you it's it was a genuine thing so mm -hmm. like, <laughs> you know I mean? there's all ways to see things and like you said i don't judge the people who do it and that's great if we can put food on the table that's great for you but yeah yeah everyone just says right. that's all yeah. yeah so this was uh so yeah 97 you know, if you think about it, I, I graduated high school in 93. Um, NYU was 94, 95. Talking about screening shirts, yep. Yep, transferred from uh, NYU to Parsons. So Parsons was 96, 97. And then Staple, you know, the t-shirts, it was like taking off really fast. So like I was making shirts for Union and Triple Five Soul, like 12, 24, 36 shirts. And I was hand printing everything. And then really quick, like within maybe three months, um, this guy from Japan calls me at home on my landline. And he was like, oh, I, I really like the staple shirt that I bought at Union. And I was like, oh, wow, cool. And he's like, can you send some to Japan? And I was like, wow, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. And I was like, how many do you want? And he's like, 1,000. <laughs> so it went, from like, it went from like 36 to like 1,000. Yeah. And I was still at that time, I was actually breaking into school. Actually, I didn't mention that, but like I had to, they didn't allow t shirt silk screening in school. So I had to break into school to make t shirts illegally. Because when you, and, um, when you were saying that, I was like, how does school allow you to monetize from something that's meant to be? Yeah. Free? Yeah. 
No, I, I left the window of the silkscreen lab unlocked and me and my friend would climb in at night and, and make t-shirts. So I was doing these for, for, you know, the orders, but obviously a thousand, I can't do that. So I decided to take a break from school, see how this t-shirt streetwear thing goes. And I figured like, if it fails, I'll just go back to school. I'll, I'll save some tuition money, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I never, I never graduated from either school. I dropped out of NYU and then I dropped out of Parsons. And you were looking at me when I said I didn't go to college. You were like, wow, I didn't know that. I'm like, of course, you went and then well, you left. <laughs> it's actually, I have to say, it's actually kind of rare, right, for a, for like an Asian in Asia and female to like buck the system and not do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. You're a very bad, very bad girl. Thank you. Thank Shame you. The what you're saying is very true. Like, to be honest, to this day, I still get judged for that by people I meet because the first thing that people meet you they go oh where do you go to college I'm just like uh I didn't go and like, yeah. like oh I'm like but why are you saying it the oh like it's something wrong I feel like now I'm 35 bitch I'm not like you know what I mean? in my early 20s I'm 35 and I feel like I'm a good person I feel like I stand tall with dignity I work hard I have good friends I have a great child like so I feel like I succeeded in life so why does my college papers or like that thing mean anything to you? Shouldn't you judge me based on how I'm speaking to, to you today, how I'm treating you as a friend or, you know what I mean, me? Yeah, yeah. So, yep. yeah, you're right. No, people, people have a lot of those sort of society rules. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, I'm a, I have a child, but I have tattoos, and I used to have blonde hair, and I, when I send her to school, like, I get so many looks. Lukes. I got so many. Because um, I don't fit into that system that they expect. I don't fit into that bubble, right? Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And you know, the, the other thing is, um, I think having Asian parents is part of that too, right? Especially, you know, as I mentioned, my parents, you know, to get their passport, they, they like, they hijacked me into, into America. Um, but I think they had expectations that I should have been like a doctor and a lawyer. Yeah. I mean, I know for a fact that's what they wanted of me. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and so for me to go to, drop out of NYU, then go to fucking art school. Yeah. They were like, what? You're going to go to it's art crazy. school? Shame. Yeah. Total shame. And then the drop out of art school, not because I got a job at some agency yeah. or I got a huge, it was so I could make t-shirts. Yeah. They, they really, in 1997 was like a big breaking point for me and my parents were like, I lost a lot of connection with them. And Hong Kong too. What do you mean on home? Oh, yes. Yeah, bad year. Bad, bad year for them. Um, my dad always had this saying, as the Asian dad, he said to me, because he's a successful businessman and he came from nothing, like literally nothing. My dad was born, I only recently found out, at the back of a coffin shop because his mom didn't have money for an apartment. So they rented the back space of a shop that made coffins. And he was born there. He was just like the midwife. Wow. He was just like, and he was just next to the coffin. So that's where my dad came from. So when he had me, obviously he didn't want me to go through that kind of like route. And he said yeah. to me, Jeff, there are people who work with the pen and there's the people, the person who works with the sword. Like, you know, like in the back in the olden days, right? It's like you're a soldier or you're like the guy in the back, like writing out like the art of war, right? And he's like, yeah. the guy with the pen, you know? And then I went along, like, I fell into FMB and I, I fell into FMB and I started selling coffees. So now I'm like, front line of the front of line. And yeah. 
I think he didn't get it for a long time. Like he didn't understand right. why I would want to do that, like the service industry thing. So yeah, I don't really get what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it took a long time for them to get it, I think. Do yeah. they, does your dad get it now? I think he does because he sees how much I put into it. I leave the house at like 7.30, I get back and like, he sees how flat out tired I am, but he sees how happy I am it makes me. I think at the end of the day, yeah. I want to be happy more than anything. Yeah. It shame us still. <laughs> yeah. It took a long time. I mean, like it took definitely like for me, like 10, 12 years for my mom to really accept who, who I am. And my dad, even longer, probably like 15 years. Anyhow, T-shirt. Oh, I want to, I want to add a point to that. I want to say that, you know, um, I think that's a sacrifice that people like you and I have to make where, you know, I think a lot of most people are probably very concerned with the way either society or their loved ones or their family members judge them. Right. And they want to be perceived in a very positive light to them. And in doing that, they sacrifice things that, like you said, you really love to do. And it takes a certain amount of um, audacity and selfishness. And I think selfishness is a very, um, like, it's a word that gets a bad reputation, but I think. Sensei, yeah. I totally agree. I always say that as well. There are no bad words we put bad meanings to words. I feel yeah. like selfish is just selfish, you know, and sometimes selfish can be good. Yeah. yeah. I think selfish and self-aware are actually very close to each other, you know, and it's like, you might say that, oh, you made your mom and dad very stressful and upset and stuff. Yeah, but I'm happy. And now that I'm happy and I did what I'm able to do, now I'm able to go back and take care of them too, you know, so like it worked out in the end, you know, yeah. um, but yeah, I had a lot of people calling me like selfish and and like you know a bad son and everything like that in the beginning, and I, and I had to endure that for a really long time. Yeah, can yeah. you imagine if it didn't work out, and you're now like collecting cardboard on the street? Can you imagine the amount of like shit you receive? That's weird. Is that even when I was in my mind a success, many people thought I was like about like even my best friends dude my best friends like i'd have 10 employees mil you know million dollar business and my friends would be like you know my friends who are doctors and lawyers they'd be like huh, how's that t-shirt thing going and i'm like <laughs> they dude, still, I, yeah they want to dumb you down yeah exactly you actually know? i get that as well my friends go like so you go to the cafe every day i mean i mean you serve tables you make coffee and I mean, I don't bother explaining to these people. Like, if you want to judge, so be it, right? Right. Yeah, definitely. I think having yeah. and 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 the gift of um, what you put out there that you love doing so much and what you receive back, like nobody needs to understand that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So next, um, OCD. I mean, I've been to his place before. Do you, Do you still live there? No. Um, and uh, I was really surprised when I walked into his um, shoe closet. <laughs> that, that it looked like a proper warehouse, like everything was like properly placed, and like there was not a speck of dust on this two thousand pairs of shoes. Like every box is clean, and he lives by himself. He lived by himself then, 
Um, and I had the I had the Polaroid of the photo of every shoe on the front of every, every box. Yes, and I was like, "Wow, this guy, like, is he a woman inside? Like, what?" And um, I don't think many people might know this about you. Um, about that, I mean, when I say OCD, I don't think you've been like, you know, diagnosed OCD, right? No, right, right. And, and, and I, you have to, I haven't. Yeah, been you have to be very sensitive about that because yeah, so OCD is actually an issue. Yeah, correct, because it's actually a real, real issue for a lot of people. Like, I think when we say mm -hmm. that, we're saying it really lightly. Um, yeah. Signs of OCD, like. But I will say, maybe maybe this is true for you too. I will say I might have mild OCD because when things are not the way they are supposed to be in my mind, I do get triggered. And yeah. I have to actually check myself to say, Jeff, not everyone is as the same way you are. So you have to let it go. Same. But I do have to like, check. yeah, okay. So I think we are mildly on the spectrum there. Mildly on the spectrum and also ADHD. For sure, because you will not be able. I actually saw a psychologist for different reasons for a point of time, and I told her like I definitely think I have ADHD. And she said, "No, Steph. Look, even if you're not diagnosed, there are a lot of CEOs out there who are who have ADHD, and they are my clients. And you have to understand if you manage to ADHD is not a bad thing. People just like like selfish. They label it a bad like it's a mental thing. Of course, if it really affects your life like that badly, like you're you know like that's bad, but." Um, a lot of CEOs have mild ADHD as well because that's how you manage five, ten things at the same time. Because if not, your brain Definitely. wouldn't be able to compute and do that. So right. actually, it's a superpower, like I like to call it. Oh, cool. I never thought of it that way. It is. Because like, if I work in F&B, I need to check tables, take the order, make food, make coffee, make sure everyone's happy, talk to customers at the same time. So I feel like it's a superpower. But at the same time, mm -hmm. ADHD, right? You, have, you run on this high... And this adrenaline, it keeps me going. And then when I crash, I literally just crash and burn, which is when I cut people off. <laughs> like, <laughs> I had to be alone for like five days. Yeah, but I, I've definitely had this very high level of organization and order. Are you still the same? Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's probably, you know, me and my wife, we our soulmates um but if we do like the sort of three or four times a year that we fight it's probably rooted in the fact that i'm overly ocd and she's like a like a cali girl to the fullest like to the core you know what i mean do you think that actually i actually went into it do you think that it actually affects your work in a bad way or a good way and uh, i were there any points you felt like this ocd thing actually helped you be more methodical in like you know the things that you needed to do and i'm sure your schedule is packed like every day which you know what i mean so do you yeah. think it has helped oh i think a hundred percent it's helped i think it's one of my secret weapons actually superpower. <laughs> yeah i think so i think actually the only negative i would say about having that issue is um the expectation that everyone who i work with should be as the same level and it's just it's honestly not a realistic expectation. And so like, for instance, my, my, uh, my assistant who helps me with a lot of stuff, you know, Kim, you know, God bless her soul. She's been with me for almost a decade now. Like I, I sometimes the things I say to her, I'm like, wait, I, no one can be like this. You know, it's like not reasonable. So I have to check myself and that's probably the only negative. But other than that, you know, um, a lot of people always ask me like, 
like Jeff, how you're able to do all the things that you do, you know, like, and, and get to where you get to. And I think being OCD and being like crazy controlled about so many things is, is how I'm able to do it. I don't like to lax on anything. You know, if you look at my, the notepad on my phone, like I have so many notes, like just notes on notes on notes, like every idea, I'm just like, no, no, put it in a note, you know, and then, and then try, and then even my notes are like filed into folders and everything. So it's like, it's pretty crazy. My, my OCD. I think you didn't even know this, but like, because the last time I was hanging out with him and I saw his calendar and like how like it was so fucking organized, color coded and shit. And I was like, shit, I need to get on this program because I have ADHD, right? But I have mild OCD, but in a different way in like how my things are organized in the house. That's how I'm OCD. But like my ADHD is just, I'm all over the place. I have five ideas at the same time and I don't write them down. I'm not an organized person in that sense. So because I saw your calendar and I was like, fuck, I need to get on this program with this guy. And I I remember one time even reaching out to you. I was like, Jeff, what calendar program are you using? And you just went, hi, Cal. Do you remember me asking that? Yeah, I do. I do remember that. Yeah. I just use iCal. I was like, yeah, but I went on iCal's not good enough. So anyway, now I'm on Google Calendar. It's yeah, me too. Like, me too. Same. Yeah. yeah. So it's color coded, and then I have like different calendars with different work people. So this is for this this thing, and this for this thing with different people in it. Yeah. It's great. Like I love it so much. Thank you for organizing. Yeah, yeah. Is <laughs> what I'm of course. trying to tell you. So yeah. I used to. Uh, I not used to. I I read this website that I really love called Life Hacker. Mm-hmm. which is like it teaches you like how to hack your life essentially for more productivity and they reached out and wanted to interview me about how i work so like how i organize and everything so if you read this article i mean just google jeff staple how i this is how i work on life hacker like i give up all the secrets of what i do shit it's, i need that yeah, i need that in my life so, it was really it was really an honor to be able to break down all the tips and tricks and ocds that i do no, no, no. I don't think it's an I think it's almost like, I don't, it makes you happy to finally be able to share. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. To be my, accepted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Acknowledged. Sure. Like my OCD is finally doing good for once. Yeah. 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 But I could, I, I acknowledge now that I could take it overboard and I should really, you know, That's where not the, judge people. The aware, selfish versus awareness part also comes in. Yeah. I think that if you didn't have this grueling like OCD and, and these expectations of these people, you wouldn't take your company where it is today as well. I feel like sometimes the OCD like that I have and like how I micromanage, it pushes people to work to my level. Not that my level is really high, do you know what I mean? But like, do you know what I mean? Like it eggs people yeah. on like, shit, that energy, like I need to get on that, you know what I mean? I need to compare it with that. Yeah, it could be inspiring. Yeah, it is. Like, if I was working alongside you, I'll be like, shit, I need to get on his Like, I want to be like that level, you know what I mean? Even being yeah. around you and, like, seeing your calendar made me want to be more, you know, organized. So I think that, right. that there is also good energy and essence in that. Of course, like you said, you couldn't possibly make everyone work on that level. Mm-hmm. Then everyone would be an entrepreneur and beyond, yeah. right? So I wanted to talk about what really is the grind to you. What does the daily grind mean? What does it mean or yeah. what do I, what is my daily grind? What, what, which one are you asking me? What does it mean? Cause your daily grind is so okay. different today. You're doing so many different things, but what does it yeah. mean now currently at this stage in your life? Cause it wouldn't be um, when you were younger, obviously. Yeah. It's a, it's a really great question because right now I'm sort of at a point where, and I think COVID has a lot to do with it. And you know, the, the racial injustice has a lot to do with it as well. And so the grinds where previously 
it was all about taking the 24 hours that you have in your life and making every second as productive and efficient and you know monetizable as possible. And I think now recently, it's been a little bit shifted um, where I'm trying to maybe reprioritize what is important in my life. Um, you know, this week, uh, someone in my industry recently passed away. Um, his name's Keith Huffnagel, and he has a brand called Huff, H-U-F. He founded that brand, really big brand, um, and he passed away this week. And he, he had a brain tumor that he got two years ago, two and a half years ago. And it was two and a half years ago that he also sold his company and like essentially cashed out for like, you know, almost hundred million dollars, you know, like huge. And so like, here he is working his ass off for 25 years, finally sold it, finally like multimillionaire. And literally that same year diagnosed with a brain tumor that eventually took his life. So it's like, damn, like it, it puts everything in the perspective of like, what exactly is the finish line here? How much is enough? What, Wait, when is I, enough enough? Can I just rearrange those few boxes for you? It, just to yeah, see please. the different light, right? So maybe in that 25 years, he's learned a lot. Maybe that was his journey. Maybe that was what he loved about making, yeah. about making a brand. Maybe building a brand was his, is his legacy, right? It is, for That's sure, it. yeah. So maybe when he earned that money, I mean, we don't know, but that maybe isn't his end goal. Just to, 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 like, what is the usual end goal, right? Multi-millionaire, let me now spend it. Maybe yeah, that was exactly. the time. Do you know right. what I mean? So to see it in that light, perhaps that whole 25 years was already the journey and, and was already enough, is already enough. I mean, to any, yeah. any bystander for me, building that brand for that long and making it a success, wow, you're there, you're in the books. Do you know what I mean? Just yeah, to, yeah. So that's the question that I'm trying to answer for myself right now yeah. is because I think, again, growing up as, you know, going back to the Asian immigrant story and going back to my parents not understanding me and also always trying to justify to my parents that I am a success, you know, so there's this idea that like, I want to show my mom, oh, look at how much money I've made and I've earned and now I can retire and relax and buy you a house on this island or whatever, you know. But to then like just die and not be able to do that is the initial reaction is like, oh, what a shame. But to what you said, maybe the whole life was happiness and like he already fulfilled the end of it, you yeah. know? And, yeah. but, but I'm not spiritually, I'm not there yet to be yeah. quite honest. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I get that too. Is the pressure- You, you are like that too? No, I get that too. I, it's like, like I said, are you a byproduct of your childhood? And probably you're still like reeling in that PTSD of that, those many years of conditioning, which is not easy to just let go. Yeah. You know I mean, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I know that for a fact. Yeah. And I'm glad that you're aware about it and you can just openly say that out loud. Yeah. The first step is just acknowledgement, right? Totally. Yeah. Perhaps maybe in another 10 years, another five years down the road, we have another conversation because we haven't spoken in 10 years, maybe. No, not so long. But like another five years, we have a conversation. You go like, you know what, Steph, I'm there. I don't give a shit about like making my parents proud with money anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's such a deep, long untangling that has to happen. And I've only just recently started tugging at the thread, you know? Yeah, you're like the kitty playing with the ball of yarn. Yeah, I'm like, oh, oh shit, what's this thing? Yeah, it yeah. comes off. Oh, it unravels. <laughs> 
yeah wait what are we talking about the grind yeah the grind so you know if you asked me this five months ago i would have had this really succinct answer of like here's what my nine to five day looks like and here's who i you know here are my soldiers and here's who i tell what to do and this is how the company's structured but now the grind is really about what does everything that i've built mean in this new world that we're entering in 2021 you know um and you know there's there's the capitalistic side which is like i have to make the money i have to keep these you know 50 people that work for me and work with me you know happy and employed but then there's that other thing of like what does all this shit that i'm making and creating actually represent Mm. Um, and i'm always trying to sort of find the the right middle point of like what actually um what i call cash versus craft right so there's like the craft of what i'm making and then there's the cash that you make from it and i think it's like a seesaw like the more the more cash you make the less the craft goes down and the more craft you make the cash goes down and i'm trying to keep keep the thing balanced um you're very interesting you say this because i noticed something about it a lot of fashion houses like you know they make the cut and sew they make the hot couture and all that stuff right but the things that sells like hot cakes are the t-shirts yeah you know what i mean like and the, under- and the underwear <laughs> yeah exactly every fucking brand out there needs a t-shirt with just a basic simple their logo and that's yeah. because like that's what mass market can afford and at the end of the day mass markets where the money's at it's mass right and the mm-hmm. hot couture people it's just like what 0.001 percent of people in the world so that's yep. Very, very interesting you bring that up because it is what it is, cash versus craft, right? You still need to sustain yeah. the business, but at the same time, you know, you still want to like have some kind of like art form that is not dying there. Right, right. I actually recently, um, I connected with uh, the people at Victor and Rolf, like the parent company of Victor and Rolf. Do you remember that brand? Yeah, I do, I do. Yeah, so Victor and Rolf now, all they do is they make fragrances, like cologne and perfume. Yeah. But every season they make this huge runway show with haute couture and fashion and everything like that in the sample, but they there's no Victor and Roth clothing collection anymore. So they make all of this just to sell you the smell of it. It's like the ultimate, it's the ultimate, I love it. I love it because it's like just the ultimate BS fucking smoke and mirrors ever, you know, like here's the whole world recreated and then <laughs> there you go buy that now <laughs> it's like damn okay yeah cash versus craft what are we yeah. talking about again the grind and then cash versus craft i feel like two of us are like goldfish swimming in it in the tank <laughs> and then we talk and we talk and then the bubbles float and then when we meet we're like what was that again <laughs> like, yeah seriously yeah yeah so but really what were we talking about again the, grind. the last question you asked me was the grind. Yeah. And have you finished with lying? <laughs> yeah, I think so. That's my grind. That's my daily grind now is, is, okay. Yeah. There's my answer. My daily grind is balancing the cash versus craft now. Okay. And the purpose, you know, Beautiful. because honestly, that's the page that I'm on as well. You know what I mean? Like, like last year, it's like so much about how do, how do you capitalize more? How do you make more money? And then like, how should I make the shop? Like, you know, the space more, like I can put more tables and like, you know, have more customers in. And this year it's more about like, which is also why I started this podcast thing about reaching out to people. So mm-hmm. outside of making money, I want to, I realized that what I'm really good at, it's like talking to people, bringing people together. And that 
good people, like like-minded people together. And that is my gift, so to speak, I feel like. And which is why I started this thing, because I just want to send out mess- good messages to people. And that's like the purpose. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. exactly as you said. I yeah. Like, I feel like it's amazing when people have that and they understand that and that's what COVID did for them. Right. right. Great. And I didn't even expect you to give me that answer. But then it's so in line with like where I'm headed to as well. Mm. Thank you, Jeff, for organizing my life. <laughs> yeah. Anytime you need it. Because I've juggled <laughs> thoughts, but I don't have the words for them so often. Mm. Like, because it's like like a thousand things at the same time all the time. Yeah. Thank Your you. brain works in a very, very unique way. Thank you. And so does yours. It's like, that's the polite thing to say. So, so does yours. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think my brain is actually really like boring and, and like, not um, boring, not boring. Binary is the word. Yes. One one zero yeah, yeah, one yeah. one one. Next line one three yeah. one zero. Oh no, that's a three there. Put it back to zero. Put it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you're like that, and I'm the other one. I'm like the Teletubby. You know, I'm thing one and thing two. You know, I'm in Willy Wonka. I'm like doing 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 doing. Yeah. And having you as a friend, as a mentor around would be like Steph come back down to one now put that in zero which is perfect which you know i have to say as i'm watching you through this social media platform of instagram morphing from a young woman to a young mother yeah it's really amazing to see how you're raising ara ara right mm-hmm. yeah it's just amazing to see um how she is as a as a girl you know and how your methodology of raising her, I know already is not traditional mothering. It's like, I, know, I already know for a fact that it's non-traditional, but it's great to see that she is like a very like level-headed, smart, intelligent, young you know thing. You're so good I at could just, I, I'm like good at reading people even through Instagram and I could just tell like somehow I don't know if you want to take credit for it or not, but somehow you've managed to raise an incredible young no, being. I, I don't understand. I get that. I swear to you, I think that will be my legacy in the end because that's what everyone says to me. And I have people who don't like, I don't really like to use the word hate anymore. I think that's such a strong word. Um, some people who don't really like kids and they see my child and they come to my house and I don't know how to, I don't know how to hang with children stuff. I'm like, you don't need to hang with her, please. Do you think the bitch wants to hang with you? Mara <laughs> would come along and suddenly they're enthralled. They're in love. Yeah. She just needs three minutes alone with you. You're dead. You're gone. You're in love. You'll be, yeah, yeah. be making staple for kids out of the blue. And don't, don't take this the wrong way, but I think on paper, like traditionally, you probably would make a horrible mother, like on paper. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like just like no, no shit, Sherlock, for sure. Like yeah. if you if you told me before that I think I'm gonna, have it, I'd be like, are you sure, Steph? You want to do this? You know? But yo, you did it, and like it's amazing what I'm what I'm seeing, and I can't wait to meet her in person. I believe in learning about life through experiencing life, so I've never yeah. stopped a child, even when her dad had left me like four years ago. I was very honest with her because I went to see a psychologist. That was why I saw a psychologist. And the psychologist was like, you need to be as honest as to your child as you can. Obviously, I left out the, the gruesome parts, but I told her, daddy's not your daughter. So to this day, she's still very, like, when you talk to her, she talks like an adult. You'll be amazed at the things she says to you. And right. that's really crazy. I think, I think it's because of that. Like, I've been very open. Like, I did an interview with my tattoo artist. 
And um, Ara's known I've tattoos for a very long time. So I was like, do you want to know how it gets done? Because I think as a child, you'd be interested to know how the world works, right? Yeah. So I brought her to my interview and I let her see, this is what a studio looks like. You know, it's not scary. Wow. This is how yeah. they make money out of this. Like they're proper people. Like I don't want her to like you stereotype people like, oh, tattoo artists are bad people. They, you know, yeah, right. Stuff like that. So I, I just want her to be as like broad spectrum mind as possible. Because when yeah. I was growing up, it was like you said, like my parents wanted me to be in this box, in this tunnel. And I yep. don't want her to have that. She can be whatever she wants to be when she grows yeah. up. Yeah, and it's hard, to, it's hard to unprogram yourself from that kind of upbringing. Like to this day, even though I have a tattoo and everything, there's still a part of my brain that's like tattoos are taboo. No, it's so you're, weird. you're not super funny. I have like so many tattoos. And when I see people with tattoos, I go, I had to go so close. <laughs> How do you tell what genuine creative interest is anymore? You know what I mean? Like if you were to reach out to someone for a collab, mm -hmm. but you want to know that person's a genuine interest in being creative versus like just capital, like you said, craft versus cash, right? Yeah. How do you tell? Uh, I can tell really well. I hate to say it, but I'm, uh, I, I can, I can read the room really, really well. And so like within minutes, I know, and that's not to say that that's again, to your, to your philosophy now, that's not necessarily a good or bad thing. Sometimes when someone's in the room and they're like a quote unquote mercenary, like all they care about is the business and the money. Sometimes you want that guy in the room. Like sometimes you need that, you know, but it's important to know who honestly, you're talking to. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you. I'm very good at that as well. Like, honestly, I'm really good at it. Um, and I don't hate that their presence is in the room because sometimes I feel like I'm learning from their excessive bullshit. It actually teaches yeah. me stuff as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, or even how, 100%, to, yes. how not to be. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, in my mind, oh, I'm just like, yeah. Oh, I can't be like this dude. Yes. I have to I have to memorize how he is. Yes. Next time I go into a meeting, please don't dress like that or talk like <laughs> this, you know? Um, yeah. yeah, but I get that. But the other question would be, if this person came came along, this this entity or this industry, this person came along and they have a lot of money, a lot of backing, right? And they go like, Jeff, I just want you to do this and create some kind of hype from it. And then I'm going to give you like this six digit like thing to do this. Mm -hmm. Would you do it just for the money now? To a degree, I honestly would <laughs> because, you know, as long as it doesn't um, take everything that I've built and chip away at it, like I wouldn't take what I built and then slice off 25% of it to like get this cash. But if it doesn't really affect the legacy that I'm trying to build and if it helps to support like, you know, my creative director or my operations guy, or my head of marketing, and it just helps to make it bigger, then I will take it. Um, and I think it's actually my job as a creative and an artist to reinterpret that whack pay empty paycheck and reinterpret it and make it have meaning. And it, that's not to sound pompous. That's actually what that person wants me to do. That person wants me to give his money meaning, yeah. you know, so that's my job as a creative and a designer really. So I'm kind of doing I, it. I love that you think like that also because that's how you turn like a negative situation into a challenge and make it into something that has meaning. And that's how yeah. exactly I would see it as well. hundred yeah. yep. percent. Yeah. So, I'll, so I'll give you, a, I'll give you a great real life example. You know, like one of our biggest clients is, um, is, and maybe this is the part that you would want to, I'd want you to beep out. But one of our biggest clients is, 
right? And it's like a company, you know? And quite frankly, like when they first called us, I was like, oh man, this is really like not good. You know, it's like just beer. And I know that they can't spend the money anywhere else. So they're just trying to give some cool guy money, you know? But and you we were actually, and I don't drink at all. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and so we were, yeah, thank you. And so we were able to actually turn that whole idea into like, we created like basically a design laboratory where I get to curate and pick creatives from all over the world and give them money to fund whatever they want to do. Shit. Yeah, so it's like Robin Hood. I'm like kind of stealing from the rich to give to these people who need it. And here's the thing, if I did that one time and they were like, and was like, yo, Jeff just basically like took our money and like gave it to all his homies and his creative friends. That was really bad. That would not be good. But loved it so much that we're in our third year of working together in a row now. That's how much they love it, you know? And that to me is like such a win-win where like they're happy, my homies are happy, I'm satisfied and I'm proud to post and share the work that I'm doing with them. And so it's, it's an awesome relationship. So I turned something that originally felt kind of, gross yeah. and made it really positive good job well done that's exactly the kind of the smallest violin like playing for you that's exactly the kind of energy and the thing that i want to like i want to expose to people to understand that sometimes it's not just all about the money and if you get an opportunity yeah. like this you should try your best to turn it into a way where everyone benefits and not just uh -huh. for the sake of money which i know a lot of yeah. people do well i'll i'll, I'll tell you the flip side of that story. Yes, it's not always about the money, but I'll, the opposite side of that, it's not always about just the art. Yeah. Like, I have, I have artist friends that like, yo, Jeff, I don't care about the money. I don't care about the check. Like, fuck capitalism and all that stuff. I'm like, yo. I've heard that before. Yeah. More power to you. But it's like, that's sometimes equally difficult to work with someone who's all about the art and doesn't give a shit about the money. Hmm. I, I've, I've noticed a real changing tide and I can tell, you know, this is the good thing about Instagram and like the dialogue that I'm able to have with fans. But like when I post an ad, an ad type commercialized thing on my feed that even me, because I'm old, I sort of am like, Ooh, this feels like really yeah. ad like, and that's I posted like, the comments. That's how I feel as well. Yeah. But the comments from the kids are like, yo, Jeff, get that man. Like change the culture. Like, I'm like, Oh wow. They're like all about it. You know, it's really cool. And I'm not filtering. I, I never, ever in my life have deleted a comment like i leave everything you tell someone like me that because you're gonna get like <laughs> ridiculous like comments from go for it go for it but no but i do you, you know, read I, it's every really comment? awesome this is for the kids out there do you read every comment no i don't you can't right like how do you i can't comment? yeah I, I i don't i tried to really limit my time on on instagram and let me show you another life hack like look if you look at my phone can you see my phone yeah. I Can you see that it's black and white? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I keep my phone on black and white mode yeah. all the time. Because when things are black and white, for some reason, your brain is like, I'm not interested in this yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I try to, own, like, yeah, I check the text message, I check the email, and then I just put it down. Sensei. I feel like, like we're the Ninja Turtles now. Um, but like, but you know what? I knew at some point I wasn't. I in my head I was thinking. I think at some point we're gonna show our phones because of our OCD. Like show your phone again, the main home screen. 
Yeah, sure. <laughs> Here's my home screen. Look at my home screen. Wow. OCD. Admirable, admirable grasshopper. You need to get there. Yeah. <laughs> and I here's my here's my swipe. So here's my main screen. Yeah. And then this is like. Oh, you didn't download the new thing. Look, it's all here now. Yeah, I know. I'm still on the old thing. Yeah, I haven't had time. Wait, to so what's on the what's on the home screen? What's on, what's that one button on the bottom? It's literally phone calls. It's for work. Phone calls. WhatsApp. Wow. Yeah. I got to download the new OS. But um, this is not okay for my OCD. They have to be color oriented. So when yeah. I have time, because I haven't had time to do it, I'm going to put all the photos with like colors. So like, do you have the thing like when you get a notification, do you have to get rid of it? Mm, no longer, no. Also, oh, you got over that. My OCD still won't allow it. I, I got over that. I also got over like trying to get to inbox zero. Oh, I have to get there. I have to. <laughs> I just have. I got over it. You know what I do now though? I turn off the notification, like the red dots for my emails. Because yeah, it me not, too. takes you away from the present moment too much. It, it shames you into like thinking yes. you're not productive. Yeah. Yes. And also my phone is now permanently on do not disturb mode. Ah. Yeah. How do people reach you urgently though? Um, good question. They come to <laughs> they my can't. Shop. So I make it <laughs> knock on your door. <laughs> go, basically, like I really like I'm very uh what's that word? I don't really reply texts or phone calls and stuff anymore. Like if you uh -huh. want to come down to my shop and let's have a real conversation. Right. I realize like I've I made too many friendships in this life, which is isn't a bad thing, but I don't have the time to upkeep all those friendships. And if I'm not gonna upkeep one, I'm just not gonna upkeep all. In that sense, like, oh, how are you today? How are you doing? I can't do that to like 50 people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, if this happens between you and I, we can have that conversation about the past five years. And that's right. great. You know that I'm genuinely talking to you. And Jeff, I know you're genuinely talking to me. Yep. So I love genuine conversation right now. I just don't waste time, like, eh, hey, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like, I I'm guess the same. Yeah. I can't chit chat about life on, like, let's have dinner. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Come to yeah. my house, like, or let's yeah. go somewhere. I want to see you face to face and let's do this. Right, so when right. people come to my shop, I make an effort to talk to them when they're face to face with me. But other than that, like my phone is just really like a tool. Literally, yeah. I'm on it a lot because I have to work. Because, yeah. you know, like, I don't, I don't know how it is in the US, but like for Singapore, suppliers, like even for my inventory, everything, it's ordered through WhatsApp. Whoa, no, I not in America at all. I kid wow. you not, like that is the productivity level of Asia. Like, and they expect it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excuse me, you haven't paid yet. This is your invoice sent through WhatsApp, wow. and you can pay through your phone with QR code. So that's yeah. how all the payments are made right now. So that's how they like are on your ass. So right, right. I get that desktop, and I get everything there. Yeah, and yeah. the other thing that happens with me is when I am having, let's say, I sit down for like two and a half hours with my friend, and like even when my wife is like trying to get a hold of me, like. When I'm with my friends talking at dinner, like I don't, I'm not like on oh, the phone same, talking same, at the, same. yeah, I just, I'm just like focused on the person for two hours. And that makes me feel so good that like, I can just tune everything out, you know? Yeah, same, because I don't usually do that. So when I have a one-on-one -on -one conversation, it's all about you. And yeah. um, when my friends or the people at the table are just start using their phone and stuff, I just get a bit, I wouldn't say annoyed, like that's your, you know, that's your prerogative, that's your thing. Yeah. And the next time I just wouldn't ask them out for dinner. Right. <laughs> right, right. More casual, like come to my house and have drinks and you can be on your phone and do whatever the fuck you want, right? 
yeah. Can't just sit down and have dinner because that's my one-on-one time. I know. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, we have. To What's your sign? Time. What is your sign again? Wait. Let me try and remember yours. You're you're born somewhere in March. See? Wow! I cannot believe myself. Usually, my memory is like a goldfish. Um, my birthday is November one, so I'm a Scorpio. Oh, okay. Uh, you're asking because you're going to send me a package, right? <laughs> I'm going to open the box and I go, the fuck! Staple shoes! For me! Yeah. <laughs> the the, the, o- the OG pigeons from my... I'm just going to grab it off my shelf that I have... Not even my size. And just give it to me. Yep. Yeah. I don't, I don't, like, take pictures or take notes of stuff. I really believe in, like... um, You know what osmosis is? Nope. It's a scientific term where it's like when two things are next to each other, there's like an energy that passes between the two bodies. And I really believe like creative energy is like if I just and I, I I'm still the verdict is still out whether osmosis can happen through a Zoom call. But I do think that like when you spend time with people, you don't have to take pictures, take notes and document the whole thing. The energy passes yeah. and you might not know what to do with that energy tomorrow, but yep. it's stewing in your brain and it'll come out one day. Yep. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. yeah. Let's go to the last three questions I have for you. Okay. What's the one? It's like a game show. It is a game show because like, I know you have so <laughs> Okay. Just let, to let people know, like how many pairs of shoes do you own right now off the top of your head? Don't it's kind of embarrassing, that. but it's like, it's all, I stopped counting after 3,500 pairs. Shit. Okay. Yeah. And do you remember every shoe that you have? Like if you walked into a store, like actually I have that, I have that, I have that, I have that. Yeah. You actually remember every shoe that you have. Yeah, I do. Yeah. But in your mind though, like you don't, it's not on like a note. No, there's that, there's a folder in my hard drive that has every single shoe logged. Of course I have a photo. Yeah. <laughs> This OCD is so cute. Okay, so what's the one shoe that you wear the most in terms of comfort and design? And I want—I don't want it to be like current. I don't want it to be like 2020 shoe of the year. You know what I mean? I mean like through the years that maybe oh, okay. the all time, worn, like the all time, all time, all time, and like the shoe gets worn out, but you would go back to buy that same shoe. You know what I mean? Like that. Yeah. Shoe, that shoe. I guess it's, uh, this is such a lame answer, but I, I, it's the Air Force One, I guess. Like the Air Force One is a 35-year-old shoe. And, you know, th- so the way my organizational works for my sneakers is, as you saw, I have the home collection, which is a couple of hundred, right? That's like a wall of sneakers with the photo over it. That's the home collection. That's the home collection. That's the home collection. Now, out of the home collection, there is a weekly rotation. So that is the seven to 10 shoes that stay by the front door, right? Mm -hmm. And every couple of weeks, I put that rotation back into the home collection. So then I get like a refresh, right? Mm -hmm. But offsite in the middle of New Jersey somewhere, which I'm not gonna tell anybody where, that's where the other 3,200 plus sneakers live, okay? Mm -hmm. So, what was the point of me saying this? I don't even know. <laughs> Why was I telling the story? Air Force Ones. Out of oh, Force yes. Force. Yes, yes. See? So, oh, my God. You do have ADHD, see? Yeah, seriously. So, so the Air Force One, there's at least one pair of Air Force Ones in my regular weekly rotation every week for 
since I've been a sneakerhead. Yep. Yep. No, but, wait, you know, there's, diff there's wait, different. So every week in your rotation, there will be a pair of Air Force Ones. Yeah. yeah. But like a different colorway, a different like whatever collab and all that stuff. Right. But there yep. will always be Air Force Ones there. So that's your yeah. shoe. Yeah. So obvious. For how so obvious years? for a sneakerhead. For how many years now, you think? Um, beginning of time 30 30 years <laughs> no way no i wouldn't say that it's obvious i would say like i want to find the staple shoe for staple like I mean, yeah ask what the staple shoe for staple is because if you talk about steve jobs everyone knows what his shoe is that type of thing right so, so if you the staple shoe for staple for other people is going to be the dunk the sb dunk no 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 you know? the staple shoe for jeff staple Oh, okay. Okay. Not it's the Air Force. Staple shoe yeah. In staple. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Yeah. I have to get my prepositions right. Yeah. But I, I want to clarify hmm. if you logged the number of total hours that I wear each sneaker, the Air Force One is not the most worn. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it has to remain in the top seven at all times. Get it. Yeah. I get it. Next. What is this? LA or NYC? Is this a tough question? Uh, it is. It's kind of a. It's kind of a tough question because it's always been um, New York City for number one. You know. That's why I wanted to ask this question. <laughs> I I met you with, before you got married, so I know how much you love New York City, right? And now that you're yeah. residing in LA, and I love LA now. Right. I just wanted to it's ask. It's tough questions. because. You know, I used to spend 75% of my time in New York and 25% of my time in LA. And now in COVID, you know, COVID has managed to rob New York of its number one attribute, which is that hustle spirit and mentality. And COVID just robbed it. And when you rob New York City of that hustle, there's actually not a lot left in New York. Like the restaurant scene's gone, the club scene's gone, the music scene's gone. Yeah. The subway is gone. Like now you just have shit weather, rats, and like not so good food, you know, like, Annoying. yeah, I mean, actually the produce and like the grocery store food in New York sucks, to be honest, like all the vegetables and fruit that we get are from California. So by the time we get it, it's like three to five days old already. Yeah. So now all things being said, when you now compare LA to New York, New York is like you know la is like now you've got the better weather the better produce the better food you know like the the open space that you need in this time of covid and energy is like the same now so i kind of prefer la so i'm spending now more time in la than i am in new york so what you're saying now i cannot quote this forever like it's not going to be perpetual but for now right yeah yeah uh and oh the God, big question that where did you yeah the big question that everyone asks now is will new york be able to recover you know, like New York recovered from the Great Recession, from Shearson Lehman, from 9-11, you know, from the blackout. But will New York be able to recover from this is the is the big billion dollar question. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on that? I, I am not one of the, you know, there's people that are like, of course it'll recover. We recovered from so many things, you know, and then there's people that are like, no, New York's dead. I'm not so firm on the answer yet. I'm not 100% confident that New York will recover from this. And I'll tell you the biggest reason why, the biggest difference between 9-11 and now um, is actually this, 5G internet. 
you know, during 9-11, there was no LTE 5G. Like you couldn't have a Zoom video conference call unless you had a plug-in yeah, yeah, Ethernet yeah. cable. Yeah. But now, if I want to operate my business out of like Oklahoma, I can, and no one would even know the difference. I could, I don't even need Wi-Fi. I could be just walking around Oklahoma having yeah. a conference call with you. And so now you don't have to be in New York. And I think that's really going to, people are going to realize like, oh, I don't need to pay Manhattan rent. I don't need yeah. to pay Brooklyn rent, you know? Yeah. So that's going to be a big problem. Yep. What's this? Is this your awkward like glitch? when? Is like that, because I, I think people always look to me as like, you're like the mayor of the LES, you represent NYC, you own the pigeon mark, the unofficial mascot of New York City. And I feel bad to talk, you know, negatively about the future of the city no, no, that no, I no, call. No, 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 it's not being negative about it. I feel like there's a difference between being negative and being objective. Yeah. Being objective would actually, your advice or the things that you're saying in this podcast, if whoever hears it, like what we're very global, like, but, um, whoever listens to it and they make the most of it would understand that you're just being objective. And then if yeah. they're taking this as good advice, they would then pivot their business to, to, to just make better business or do better. Or, or, do you know what I mean? Just do better. Right. If you, if you are still listening to this podcast all the way to now, I'm going to send you a staple t-shirt. Like I want you to email me and say, I listened to the podcast at this point and I will send you a t-shirt. Oh my God. That's amazing. How are they going to email you? They have to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, is shipping fee included? Because I shop online a lot. <laughs> How about I send, I send the whole, if there's a lot to Singapore, I'll send the whole bulk shipment to you. And, and then they could go to your cafe to pick it up. That's exactly what I was going to say. Okay. Plug it, Jeff. They have to come <laughs> to my cafe and buy a coffee in order to get the staple. <laughs> like, okay, cool. We're business cool. people. <laughs> so the last question I have would be business moral tips. I was going to set up a brick and mortar store and I want to grow my business eventually, like have a five-year plan. Where would you say, like, do you have any tips or a good place to start? Um, can I be more high level? Can I answer that more on a 30,000 foot level? Yeah, of course. You can. Okay. You can skydive. Because I, I, I want to I answer in a way where like, even if you have a a cafe or like a, you know, an agency, like you'll be able to learn something from it. Yeah, um, but I think, you know, a, a business moral tip that I have is to always, always have empathy for the other person. And I think a lot of people don't do enough of that. Like when you're having a conversation with someone, put yourself in their shoes to understand what they're going through before you just bark out your comment or whatever it is that you want to say, you know, understand what it's like to live in someone else's shoes. And then the other thing that goes kind of hand in hand with that is always through my career, I didn't care if you're the CEO of a billion dollar corporation or you're the janitor, I'm going to talk to you the exact same way and give you the exact same respect because you actually never know when the janitor can become the CEO and the CEO will become the janitor. You know what I mean? Like those things switch all the time. And this, this happened to me when I was really young where I actually had a meeting with Gianni Versace and I went to the Versace headquarters and I brought my portfolio to show Versace my, my work. And the front desk person who was working security thought that I was delivering food and he made me go in through the service entrance. So he made the assumption that like, oh, this Chinese guy with a bag is here to deliver food. So he has to go in through the back. 
but I was actually meeting the head of the building. I could have made a big stink out of it. I could have been like, what? I'm going to get you fired, bro. You know, but I was like, all right, no, he showed me everything that he knows that like I need to know about him. And he's going to be fucking working at that desk for the rest of his life because he can't, you know, evolve beyond that. So just be careful the way you treat people just because you think they have a blue check or tons of followers or a lot of money or drive a certain car. You got to treat them the same way as you treat like the uncle who has the, the coffee shop. You know what I mean? Like you never know who you're talking to. hundred percent. I think uh, the two things that you just listed out, wait, what's the first thing again? Cause I had something to say about it. But then the first thing was empathy about like knowing what's in the other person's okay. shoes. Um, just to add on to that. Cause I'm in the service industry and I work for online. I serve customers and I talk to a lot of different people and like my neighborhood's a melting pot. I have the bankers, I have the ship brokers, I have the event company, I have the fitness people, all kinds of people come through. And um, my staff gets really hurt when like, you know, these people with the, 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 you know, chip on their shoulder come in and they're really rude to us. And they're just really mean. And I told, I tell my staff this all the time, like at the same time, when you're working in service, you need to have the empathy to understand that they could be assholes, not because they're assholes every day. What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that sound? Um, I think that's... <laughs> um like it could be that they're just having a bad day and mm-hmm. that empathy kicks in and you need to understand that you know they could have been having a bad day and my position in service is when you walk in you could be having a frown but when you leave my door you should be leaving with a smile which is why i have 85 percent retain rate of like people coming back because like i just give you 100 percent. and to your second point it makes so much sense because all kinds of people come through and I give them the same service that I would give yeah. any person that comes through with a with a you know Rolex or like with nothing and tote bag and like it's the same. And I've right. with everyone and I've learned so much from different kinds of people just based yeah. on the things that you just said. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, you're welcome. And if you're still listening, <laughs> wow. Thanks everyone for listening. This is Jeff Staple. I'm the founder and creative director of Staple Design. It's been an honor sitting with my friend Steph for Arch Conversations. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, just to keep in touch. I'm at Jeff Staple. I'll see you around. Peace. Bye. Bye. (laughs) That's all I have to say.